Welcome to Series 2 of the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. I'm Leslie Goodburn and I decided to develop the podcast after the death of my husband Seth from pancreatic cancer. I wanted to help others understand the disease, its impact, the work that goes on every day to find treatments and hopefully one day a cure. Throughout the series you'll be accompanied by me and my friend Charlotte Foster from Charlotte Foster Productions and we'll talk all about the aspects of the disease from biology to emotional and physical impact. Along the way, we'll meet patients, families, doctors, nurses, oncologists, researchers, lots of different people with varied and different interesting experiences of the disease. The podcast will be frank about the reality of the disease. They will show the commitment and dedication of people working to support a breakthrough in a cancer where survival rates have barely changed in the last 50 years. But they will also focus on the love, the community of support and personal stories of those whose lives are affected. So join us on our second journey of discovery via the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast, made in memory of Seth Goodburn. Hello, welcome to September's episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts. I hope you are well. This month, I have been speaking to Ali Stunt. She is the founder and chief executive of Pancreatic Cancer Action. And she is also a 13-year survivor of pancreatic cancer. Yes, I did say that right. 13-year survivor of pancreatic cancer. So obviously you will hear about Ali's story, about her diagnosis, the treatment and everything since then. You'll hear about why she founded Pancreatic Cancer Action. And also you are going to hear a bit about how 2020 and the challenges we have faced this year and you know what I'm talking about yes I'm talking about the the pandemic the coronavirus the COVID-19 crisis how that has had a huge 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 impact on the lives of patients with pancreatic cancer it is shocking what you are going to hear Ali say in that regard so without further ado I'll let Ali begin by telling you a little bit about her. We need to go all the way back to 2007. Um, I was uh, 41 and uh, didn't have any history of you know, smoking or I wasn't overweight. Um, uh, I had a regular sort of lifestyle, went to the gym even. And, um, and it was about um, a year before then, I'd been diagnosed with uh, new onset type two diabetes. And my GP and myself thought, mm, this is a bit odd. You don't fit the profile. You're not overweight. You know, have no family history. This is a little bit odd. So we sort of ignored it, really. And she told me to, to basically alter my lifestyle in terms of my, my diet. She said, I cut back on, you know, sugary foods and all this kind of stuff. And I, but my diet really wasn't that bad to begin with. So, you know, I was sort of wondering why um, what I was doing wasn't really working for me. So it wasn't until about six to nine months later that I started to get backache. And um, I, it was in the, the middle of my back. If you think of where a bra strap sits, right in the middle, and that radiated round to the front. 
And I also started to get pain on eating. So not as the food was going down, but as almost as if it, as it hit the stomach. And then I double over. Um, and then um, I had change in bowel habit. I had uh, bouts of diarrhea and, and some were incredibly urgent. Uh, nothing like that I'd ever experienced before, even with sort of food poisoning. Um, and all of this took me to the doctor because these were symptoms that were really not normal for me. And I, when I first went, they told me the backache was probably muscular. Um, they told me that the bouts of diarrhea, maybe I have IBS and to go to the chemist and take buscopan. Um, and with the pain on eating, they thought I just had a bit of a severe case of indigestion. So they actually told me uh, to go to the chemist and take Gaviscon, which I duly did all of those things, thinking that there was nothing seriously wrong. Because, uh, and I kept going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards to the GP. And, um, and the problem was I was seeing lots of different GPs because it's a multi-GP practice. And, um, you know, I, I never really had a proper relationship with anybody at my GP practice. So they'd know me and they'd know this is a bit odd for Ali. Um, so eventually we, the pain just really got worse. And, um, you know, I've had two babies, but the pain of this was just excruciating. And um, I was going from, you know, paracetamol and ibuprofen, and then I was leapfrogging the two, and then I was taking over the counter codamol. Then I went to the GP and they prescribed pres prescription strength codamol, but nothing was cutting it at all. Um, and eventually on bank holiday Monday in the August um, in 2007, I ended up in A&E because my husband was just so worried about me um, and I one of the piece of advice is I said don't go to A&E on a bank holiday it's, uh, it's it's not a good experience but um, the long and short of it is they thought that I had gallstones and this was causing the pain although gallstones doesn't tend to cause back pain but hey-ho and I had this young consultant who basically um, said to me well you know it's probably gallstones you know fat, fair and 40, he said, but you're not fat. And uh, because I'd been losing weight as well in, in, in all of this mix. And, uh, and that's what the, the, the profession think of uh, women in their 40s who might be slightly overweight and blonde hair, I don't know where that's come from, but um, are, are a candidate for gallstones. So they said I needed an ultrasound scan, but being Bank Holiday Monday, there was no one there to operate the scan. So they sent me back home with tramadol and then I went to the GP the, the very next day and I was lucky actually because I actually saw a locum GP and this was a very young GP who thought you know I kept saying look I've been backwards and forwards backwards and been to A&E and all of this kind of thing and she had the suspicion that that there was something wrong and because gallstones had been suggested she tried to find a, a, an HPV surgeon. And uh, I just said to her, look, you know, I'm, I'm in so much pain. Um, my husband's got private medical insurance. I have, I'm on the policy. Can you please get me a private referral? And eventually I got to see my wonderful surgeon, uh, Mr. Neville Menezes at Surrey. And he, he basically took one look at me and admitted me straight away without any um, examination or anything. Um, he gave me um, a wonderful 
Volterol suppository. Now, I never thought I'd ever say that a suppository is wonderful, but it really, really helped with the pain. And uh, and then he admitted me straight away. And then it did an emergency ultrasound. Uh, and then literally 10 minutes later, I was in the CT scanner. And then what they found was a five and a half centimeter mass on my pancreas. So that was a bit of a terrifying journey, as you can imagine. Um, I have to admit that I had no knowledge of pancreatic cancer whatsoever. I thought it might be cancer, but I didn't know the implications of having pancreas cancer and what that meant. And at the time, I was in so much pain when he said, we're going to operate and we're going to operate in a week's time. I just said, oh, can you not bring it forward? I'm in so much pain. I was worried about getting the pain away. And um, I went for my, my operation and uh, I asked him, you know, can you please go through what you're going to do to me? And I had what's called a distal pancreatectomy and splenectomy. And he actually produced this diagram, which completely resembled abstract art. I couldn't make head nor tail of it. And, um, and <laughs> thankfully, he's a much better surgeon than he is an artist. That's all I can say. But um, I, I had this operation, which is, um, I would say, the lesser of the two key operations that you have for pancreatic cancer. The other one is a Whipple's, which can take a little bit longer and you, you, you are um, replumbed a little bit more. But I literally lost 80% of my pancreas and all of my spleen in, in that operation, which took about five and a half hours. And I remember um, being really concerned about the general anaesthetic. It's weird how your body reacts and how your mind reacts to, to all of this, this sort of coping mechanism. And he, just before I went in, he said, look, we're going to do a laparoscopy, which means putting a, a camera through to see whether we can still operate. I thought, what do you mean you can still operate? You told me you were going to operate. So then I thought, oh, crumbs. I said, well, how long does that take? You know, how, how, how will I know? And he said, well, it'd be about 45 minutes. And then if, if we think that we can't operate, we'll bring you back onto the ward. And, and I, I went down to theatre and obviously was counted down to, to, to be put to sleep. And when I woke up, I, I literally saw on the ceiling, I thought they put me in the wrong place because there was Pluto and Donald Duck on the ceiling. I thought they put me in the pediatric ward. Bear in mind, I was still a bit woozy at this point. But what I could see was a clock across the wall. And I could see that I'd been taken down at eight o'clock in the morning. And this was now half past one in the afternoon. So I knew that I'd actually had the full operation. So that, that was quite a sense of relief to me then. Then I, I spent 10 days in, in, in hospital um, recovering um, all sorts of drain issues, pancreas um, fluid that, you, that comes out of the pancreas is really corrosive. So they have to be very careful about not um, having any leaks internally. So I had all these drains in. I spent a couple of days in, in, um, in the ICU um, out of it really. But I, I recovered really well because I was relatively young, being 41, I was fit and healthy aside from pancreatic cancer. So then I was discharged from hospital. Well, the day of discharge, my consultant came in and he said, have you got anybody with you? 
And I said, uh, no, but my husband's on his way. He said, okay, I'll come back. And then I thought, oh, he doesn't want to tell me something when I'm, when I'm all alone, which is a good thing, I have to say, from a, prof- a medical professional point of view. But then my husband, Phil, came and he sat him down and basically said, the histology's come back, that you have pancreatic cancer. And I'll see you in clinic in two days' time. And that was just the most devastating news. Although I had a, an inkling it was cancer, uh, it's just hearing him say it was was really devastating. And, you know, my husband was great, being positive. You'll get through it. You know, we'll have chemotherapy. We've already had the surgery. You know, let's, let's, we'll work this out. Um, and then in between going home, which was quite emotional, um, I had to tell my two boys that I had cancer. And I have to say that was the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do to this date. Um, And my eldest son dealt with it really stoically. Um, He was 14 at the time, Um, but internalized it. And my youngest one, who was 10, um, just screamed the house down, just basically saying, take it away, take it away. I don't like it, I don't like it, take it away. And, um, and, you know, so it was a really emotional time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard uh, on, on the kids. And it's one of the things I thought, my God, you know, I, 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 what have I done, you know, to upset you so much and uh, feeling quite guilty about it all. But um, I went to see my consultant surgeon again. Um, and in between times, I'd actually managed to look up pancreatic cancer. And, Is that a good thing or a bad thing, looking it um, up? Ooh, um, I would say try and avoid doing that if you possibly can, because I, as, as I said before, I knew nothing about pancreatic cancer. So when I saw, I thought that having the surgery and a bit of chemo, it would be fine. I, I thought of other cancers like breast cancer and, and, you know, I knew people died of cancer, but I just thought, you know, I've had some treatment. I'm going to be okay. And then I saw the five-year survival rate at that time was 3%. And I just went, no, that must be a typo. That can't be right. And, um, and the more I looked, the more concerned I got. And, um, and my husband decided not to look. And I did all the looking, um, which probably from a mental perspective wasn't a good idea. But I was, I was so shocked at the stats. And I, I just didn't know whether I'd be able to get through this. You know, well, I didn't know anything about recurrence rates after surgery or anything like that. I didn't know that detail. But, uh, you know, all I saw was this, this very low five-year survival rate. So... My surgeon um, was trying to be really, really positive when I saw him and said, look, we're, we're um, referring you on now to oncology and you're going to be seen by Professor Middleton and it's, you know, he's a great guy, all that kind of stuff. And uh, he said, yeah, and I do know somebody who's lived as long as six years. I went, what, only six? And, you know, knowing the diseases I do now, I know six years is good, but at the time I thought, what do you mean only six? <laughs> six? So, um, so that was another bit of a blow, thinking, gosh, you know, I've got to beat this guy. You know, I've got to be top of this surgeon's leaderboard. Um, so 
anyway, I went to see my oncologist and, you know, I went in with a bit of an attitude, um, even though I was only a couple of weeks out of surgery and was not really as mobile as I, I, I should be, you know, having a um, literally my stomach open like a hinge and, and things, you know, not bending very well, all that kind of stuff. But I put the slap on. And, um, and, and I walked into that office and, I, and I, I, said to, I said to my oncologist, I said, you are going to make me see my children graduate. That's your job. And um, thankfully, that has happened. Both of them have graduated now, my youngest last year. But, um, you know, he put me on chemotherapy, um, gemcitabine and cisplatin. And I had six cycles of, of that so that's two weeks on one week off uh, for essentially six months um, and um, yeah, I cope with that pretty well on the whole um, chemotherapy is not a walk in the park but I thought I would be hugging a toilet bowl 24 7 but I didn't and and that's because I took every anti-sickness drug that they could you know throw at me because uh, I was determined that, you know, for the times that I wasn't in the clinic, um, then I, I still have two boys and a husband at home and I need to be as normal as possible. But I was lucky and I didn't lose my hair very much because the drugs I had um, made them made my hair thin. And uh, <laughs> my husband had to get Dyna Rod out once because I blocked the shower. But, um, but you know, um, I, it thinned, but not noticeably so. I knew it was coming out, but it, it, it didn't uh, all come out. And, and, um, and it was meant that I, in between times, I looked relatively normal. So I think that was really important for me and really important for my, for my kids as well. Um, and I, I could also go into my local town and I could, you know, go into a shop or two and, and, and nobody would stare at me. I wouldn't scream cancer and I didn't want to be labelled uh, at all. Uh, I know some people uh, can wear it like a badge, uh, but I, there's no way I wanted to do that. And, uh, and also I tried going to the um, centre at, uh, at the hospital that um, is sort of looks after your well-being and that kind of stuff. And um, I, I was there and there's all these ladies who were talking about breast cancer. And um, I just didn't feel that I fitted in with them. And, and also when I was going for my chemotherapy at the clinic, because it was my oncologist list, um, I was in with other people who he dealt with lung and he dealt with colorectal as well as pancreas. So... Um, most of the people in there were a lot younger than me. So I didn't really connect with them either. And um, uh, not that I'm a desperately antisocial person, but I, seeing the state of some of them, bless them, I just didn't want to feel that I was in their gang, that I was going to end up like them. So mentally, I stayed away from them and, and just thought about me. And one really amazing piece of advice that came from my husband is in thinking about the stats around this disease and seeing other people around me being really really ill um, my husband just said look you know Ali you're a statistic of one this is your disease it's your treatment and this is going to be your outcome 
you are, do not fit the age profile for this disease. You're way younger, way fitter, don't have anything else going on, whereas the majority of pancreatic cancer patients are older. The median age is 72. So to be 41 um, is a hell of a lot younger. And, uh, and I think that really helped me get through mentally to think that I'm not like them. I'm me and I'm my own statistic. And uh, that's probably the best piece of advice that I got. That's really good advice, actually, because you can get lost in everybody else, everybody else, what they're doing, how, and it's not, it's, it's just you that, that matters and your outcome is the outcome that's for you is the one that's important, isn't it? And the, what, what happens to you? You, know, you yeah no I think that's brilliant advice well done your husband oh yeah he's he's um he's he's very useful in times like that he's great in a crisis I have to say um whereas I'm not <laughs> so um so so we make a good pair a good team um but but yes and, and that's what he said he said that's why I'm not googling it's why I'm not looking at anything else because all I'm concerned about is you and uh, and I think that helped him also stay uh, sane in in all of this um, because I think it can be as difficult if not more so from those those looking on who can sometimes feel very very helpless um, you know particularly when you're in pain he just found that unbearable when I was before my operation when I was in pain um, and uh, you know I, I think it's um it's, it's just just the way he is that the way he he deals with it and I think it's uh, that that really helped me get through so I then went on to have what's called chemo radiotherapy. So I had um, uh, a chemo drug, which was in a little pouch about the same size as a tennis ball that, that would be delivering very small amounts of uh, a chemotherapy called 5-FU. And this little pump was with me 24-7, um, even came to bed. Um, Bill called it Eric. And I wasn't happy that he gave it's a name because <laughs> I didn't really like it. I didn't like Eric at all. Um, it meant that I couldn't sleep on one side and all this kind of stuff. And Eric was constantly a reminder of what was going on. And I had daily uh, fractions of, of radiotherapy for five and a half weeks. And that by the end of it completely floored me. I had no energy. At the beginning, I was driving myself up to the hospital, you know, Walking in, having the treatment, it only takes 10 minutes to have the radiotherapy itself and then, and then driving back home again. Um, but after a couple of weeks, then the fatigue hit and uh, I had to get my mother to come and, uh, and drive me to the hospital every day uh, because I just couldn't do it. And I could barely sort of walk and I'd come home and go straight to bed and then get up when the children came home. And uh, yeah, so, but once that was all finished, it took about three to four weeks for everything just sort of come out of my system. And, uh, and then I started to feel better and, uh, and then went on that roller coaster of seeing the oncologist every three months and having a scan and, and then that time lengthening out and it was four months and it was every six months. And then it was every year until I got to six years and they said, look, Ali, you know, you're at a, a greater risk now of the radiation from the CT scans. If we keep scanning you, going forward so we just if you have symptoms we'll bring you in and scan you immediately but uh, and I've not had a scan since how does that feel that, that that lack of checking up that kind of that almost I don't want to say freedom because I don't think you're you're never quite free but yeah. the, the the freedom that you've got that that level of 
being let loose on the world again? It was good because I, in a way, uh, it was it was great because my oncologist was so confident that he wanted to sign, sign me off and didn't want to see me anymore. But at the back of my mind, there was a niggle. And, um, you know, I think the first couple of years, um, you know, I get a pain in my big toe and I think that I've got cancer of the big toe, you know, and, um, and a little bit paranoid about anything, you know, I might pull the muscle literally or, you know, and, and, and think the cancer's coming back. And I think it's always with you. And I think anybody else who survived this kind of thing, no matter what cancer it is, um, you've always got the fear of it, of it coming back at, at some point. And uh, that will never, ever leave me. Never. But we're here in 2020. Yes. Which has been a year. Um, Gosh, yes. Tell me a little bit about Pancreatic Cancer Action then, please. Tell me what, what it is that you do. Well, I founded Pancreatic Cancer Action mainly as a result of me being so ignorant about pancreatic cancer when I was diagnosed. And I was not only shocked at the low survival rates that I might be facing, but also the fact that they hadn't improved in my lifetime. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, you've seen great improvements for the other cancers, you hear about it all the time. Um, And I just thought, well, why is this? And then I worked out that it's because people are not as fortunate as me and they're not diagnosed in time to have potentially curative surgery and um, most are diagnosed with late stage disease and so I thought well this can't happen and also at the time when I was in hospital it was the breast cancer awareness month and all the ladies magazines which my friends had uh, very kindly given me were full of articles of ladies with um, um, with breast cancer, trying to raise awareness, and which was fantastic, but I'd never seen anything like it for pancreatic cancer. I just thought, well, somebody's got to do this. And uh, so I decided that um, it was going to have to be me because I couldn't see it. No other organization was doing it. They were supporting people, which was uh, great. Um, there was an organization raising uh, funds for research, amazing. But nobody was trying to raise the profile of the disease among the public, among medical professionals and that kind of stuff. So I founded Pancreatic Cancer Action and um, that is my overriding mission is to improve early diagnosis so that we can get those survival rates uh, going in the right direction. And uh, so we not only raise awareness with the public, um, we've done some quite controversial campaigns actually, um, and, and I'm not afraid to stick my head above the parapet and those people who know me know that that's what I'm like. Um, but we, we also do awareness campaigns with GPs. We were the very first organisation in the world to produce e-learning modules for GPs, hospital doctors and pharmacists. Um, we also fund a small proportion, uh, but fund research into early diagnosis of pancreatic cancer specifically. And looking at projects which people have got a really good idea, but the big funders aren't interested. So we pump prime them, as it were, and and as a proof proof of concept. And I'm pleased to say that two of those studies have actually gone on to get millions of pounds of funding from elsewhere. So I'm really proud of that, doing my bit. We can't afford as Pancreatic Cancer Action to fund millions of pounds worth of research. And really, if I think about it, um, is that the right way to do things? Because a lot of money is, is put into research and you don't always get the outcomes that you want. And it's a very, very slow return 
So by doing this and getting other people to fund it going forward, I think is, is the really best model um, that, uh, that, that fits our organisation. Um, we also do things like occupational health talks. So I will go into companies, well, when I used to be allowed to go into companies in the olden days, um, and, um, and those have been really well received and, and uh, as part of the occupational health programmes that uh, companies have, um, t- telling people about pancreatic cancer and uh, it's quite fulfilling. And I've actually had um, one lady come to me on email after I'd done a presentation at her work and said, look, you know, thank you for your talk. Just want to tell you that a colleague came up to me and said, as a result of your talk, she was concerned about her mum. Her mum went to the GP and she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and diagnosed in time for surgery. So wow. that, that is goosebumpy worth um and and that's why i do what i do because it's for those moments and also a lady who saw our symptoms awareness posters in in the toilets um in the motorway service area and um she'd be going back and forth to her gp for ages and she looked at the poster she said well i've got all of those except one so she took a photo on her phone of the poster took it to gp and she had an urgent referral and she is doing really really well so these things can work and we don't, maybe there are others that I don't hear about. I hope there are others and they don't necessarily reach out to us. Even just one person is well worth, is worth it, isn't it? Let's be honest, you know, one life, because it's not just one life, it's every other life around them as well that gets affected and, and that. So fabulous. Yes, and it, and it is, and it does impact the whole family. The, the, you know, pancreatic cancer is, is not just, as I said before, it's not just the, the patients, not even just the carers. It is the wider family. And um, it, can, it can have, a, in most cases, unfortunately, has a devastating impact. And, um, you know, and going back to my surgeon's um, wonderful artwork when I was about to go in for my operation, I made it my mission also to produce really good patient information booklets because I couldn't find anything at the time. And so I, um, alongside some um, clinical specialists that I I knew, um, uh, Ross Carter at Glasgow, who I I got to know pretty well, um, and we produced modular booklets because the last thing I wanted people to see was a huge booklet of everything that you could and could not have dependent on your stage of disease in one booklet, because I just thought, A, it'd be too much to um, digest. B, you don't want to be reading about a surgery procedure, surgical procedure that you can't have. And then that hope's taken away. So um, so those have been very well received. We just relaunched them, actually. Um, and um, uh, and we're including more titles in into the mix. So um, uh, I allowed my surgeon to help with the peer review, but I didn't allow him to help with the diagrams. Didn't let him draw then? No. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the importance of early diagnosis, obviously 2020 has been a year where life has been turned upside down for so, so many, well, pretty much the whole world at one point. How do you think the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected people with pancreatic cancer? What have you seen? Enormously. Enormously. I mean, this is a new crisis. It's almost the forgotten sea because we're all talking about COVID, but we're not talking about cancer. And currently, with the current stats, as I speak today, there are more people who are dying from 
pancreatic cancer than there are dying from COVID each day. So, and what we've seen is that, you know, some treatment stopped overnight um, because if you think about the surgery aspects, the people need to go into ICU afterwards uh, and those beds were being preserved for those with COVID. And, um, and the, uh, obviously the last thing you want is somebody who's had uh, surgery for pancreatic cancer to go into an ICU unit where there are COVID patients that just wouldn't work. Um, also, some of the clinicians were taken off their normal rotors and put onto the front line of, of COVID. We know that referrals for, for cancer were down by 80% at one stage. Um, endoscopy procedures, um, because there's aspiration involved in that and there's a big risk to the people in the room doing it, and um, virtually came to a, a halt. Um, and so we have people who were being referred who just didn't get the tests that they needed. Um, so it's a huge backlog. And, um, you know, there are, there are people that have been waiting, you know, over 104 days for sort of tests and treatments and all this kind of stuff. And um, so they're trying to get through the backlog now. But, you know, it's, it's really, really difficult because there are more people coming behind so it's clearing the backlog of the backlog. And I think it could take a couple of years to get through. And, and that's the real issue for pancreatic cancer patients is that we don't have that time. Patients don't have the time to sit and wait. And I do know um, uh, that I have heard anecdotally from um, a surgical unit that the, they've had patients that were operable before lockdown and are now no longer operable now that means that those poor people are not going to be surviving as long as they would have done. So it has a devastating impact. We've had people whose treatments have been either cancelled or delayed, um, and, uh, and that includes chemotherapy. Um, and it's been really, really patchy across the country. Um, we, we know that some, some places have, have done relatively well by splitting the COVID and non-COVID uh, stuff up. There were cancer hubs set up, um, particularly in the London area. Um, but I think this just really, um, you know, hit us really, really hard, really, really quickly. And I think, you know, I don't know, we weren't prepared for it as a nation, most definitely. And I think it's going to put pancreatic cancer back several years. We've just seen a very slight increase in five year survival rates from about five to um, seven, eight um, percent, and I really feel, unfortunately, that those are going to slide down. The other thing is, clinical trials were put on hold. Uh, a lot of the people involved in clinical trials are actually repurposed onto the front line for COVID as well. So it's it's been a tragedy. It's not the fault of the medical profession at all. Um, it's just this horrible virus has um, just come and, uh, and, and caused havoc and chaos. And, uh, and, and one of the um, outcomes of, of that is the fact that pancreatic cancer patients are going to be negatively impacted. And of all, obviously, lots of patients are being affected, but pancreatic cancer in particular, it's one of it, you need that early early diagnosis and more than lots of the other cancers that are out there or lots of other diseases that are out there. The early diagnosis is so critical for pancreatic cancer, isn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it is the only tool that we have at the moment to try and ensure longer term survival. So without that, then um, if people are, even if they're being referred in time, then they're not necessarily getting the tests that they need in time. And that waiting time can mean that disease progresses and, and, and that's what's so tragic. The flip side also, and what is also really tragic, is that people were reluctant to go and visit their GP. Many thought that it's either they would be at risk of catching COVID if they were going to go there, or that they were wasting the doctor's time because the NHS was so held up and revered and, and you know, we must support the NHS. And people were thinking, well, I've got these symptoms, but I'm going to hold off because the NHS don't need me mucking things up right now. And we've tried as an organisation, Pancreatic Cancer Action, to make sure that we've got the messages out um, about, you know, it is safe to go to your GPs. We're in consultation with various GPs up and down the country um, to, to say, look, they are open. You, it, what you might experience might be slightly different. You'll have a telephone converse, uh, consultation, maybe a video consultation at first, but then they are doing, um, you know, physical examinations still. Um, they've been doing that throughout um, lockdown and throughout this period. Um, they're, they're just covered in PPE, which is just a different experience for patients. But um, and I, what we were seeing is that uh, you know some GPs were, were were showing on social media that their lists had gone down by three quarters. Um, that's starting to come back now, but it's but I think people were terrified and they wouldn't present at A and E either. Again, because they're terrified that COVID's in all the hospitals and new didn't want to go near them. So there's uh, been a bit of a public awareness campaign on, on that side of things, to try and encourage people who have symptoms that are not normal for them to go to the GP. And would that be your, your message to people as well? Do you think just like get yourself checked out? You can, it is allowed as such. I think oh, it's an admission thing as well, isn't it? Like you mentioned, nobody wants to bother people because all oh, they're busy enough. Well, we've had this problem with people not going to their GPs in the past anyway. You know, I don't want to bother my doctor. Yeah, they're really busy. And that's being further impacted by COVID because my doctor's even more busy than before. But actually, the GP surgeries um, have been reacting really, really well. And they are seeing patients and um, they are referring people. And we can see those referrals going up now that people are feeling a little bit more confident to to go to their their GP practice and I went in for my flu jab last Saturday and um, it was like military precision um, and in and out have the flu jab off you go so it they're very very safe places and uh, they're not taking any risks so um, you're more likely to get in contact with COVID in the pub than you are going into your GP surgery. Yes I'm due to have my smear next week so um I, I rang up to book it and I was thinking oh good they won't they'll tell me to put it to, to delay it because of COVID no no I can come in oh good I can't wait <laughs> but it gets done <laughs> and it's really important that those things do carry on because you know we could be living with COVID for quite a while um you know the, the vaccine isn't going to be here in the next month or two it's going to take longer than that and it's going to take even if they do find one before or just after Christmas they're going to prioritize who gets it so the wider population is not going to be vaccinated against this until probably mid to end next year. So while we are living with COVID, we've just got to make sure that we 
um, take the precautions that, that, that we need to do. But we also need to be aware that, you know, there's still other diseases out there um, that people are suffering from, um, particularly cancer. And it's vitally important that if you've got symptoms that could be pancreatic cancer, that you go as soon as possible to see your GP and don't be afraid. And while you're here, what are those symptoms? It seems a good time to get them out there again. Right. Well, the most commonly reported symptom is abdominal pain. So that's tummy pain. And you can quite often find that can come underneath the rib cage. Sometimes it's slightly to the right and that can radiate around to the back. We also have jaundice. Now, jaundice is caused by the tumour blocking the bile duct. So that means the bile goes into the bloodstream. Now, the effect of that means that your uh, skin, uh, whites of the eyes can go yellow you can find that your urine goes very, very dark. If you think of builder's tea, really dark tea. Um, and also some people find that their skin itches and it could be really bad itching. It's not a little itch. It's, it's really, really annoying. The uh, other symptoms is losing weight without trying. So, and this is significant weight loss. It's not just a couple of pounds here and there. This is literally without trying and you're dropping maybe a couple of uh, clothes sizes. Um, also, we have resistant indigestion. So this is indigestion that doesn't go away when your doctor's prescribed uh, drugs called PPI. So that's lansoprazole, omeprazole, that type of drug. And if you've been on that uh, course of that four to six weeks and your symptoms are not going away and they may have got worse, then you need to go back and you need to suggest pancreatic cancer. We again with my symptom and back pain. So quite often a tumour that is in the body or the tail of the pancreas can cause back pain. And I mentioned at the, the head of this that it's it's in the middle of your back where a lady's bra strap sits and that can radiate round to the front. And you know, people do get the pain on eating, the lack of appetite and and, and that kind of thing uh, as as well. And uh, but those are the key symptoms. Now, what you might think is well, okay those could be the cause of lots of other different things. And yes, they can. But I think the key message is that if you've got symptoms that are new onset, not normal for you and persisting, go to your GP. If you've already been to your GP, go back again. And another symptom is like I had, new onset type two diabetes, which actually isn't type two, it'll be type three. Um, but that is uh, caused by the pancreatic cancer. And we know that this can occur without weight gain, or without family history, one to two years before a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. So if you think it's odd that you might well have been diagnosed or a family member has been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they don't really meet the, meet the profile, go to your GP and mention pancreatic cancer. We're doing a lot of work at Pancreatic Cancer Action on the study, looking through the um, Royal College a GP's database to try and identify those people who are most at risk of potentially having type 2 diabetes that might be misdiagnosed um, and, uh, and trying to get them through the system in another study to, to audit through with King's College London. So, um, you know, this is, this is really important. We know that up to 30% of pancreatic cancer cases can, be, um, can have this as a symptom, this new onset diabetes. So if we get um, more people coming in through that route, then that can help improve early diagnosis. And it's totally okay if you're worried that it is pancreatic cancer to go to your doctor and say, I'm worried it might be pancreatic cancer. You don't have to wait for your doctors to, su to suggest it first, do you? You can bring it up. You're not going to offend your GP in any way, shape or form. 
Oh, absolutely not. And I, I would advise it because um, what you're doing when mentioning pancreatic cancer, you're sowing a seed in the mind of the GP. It's like, mm, is it? Isn't it? Maybe I should check. And then that, that's really important to do that. But what I would also suggest, if you have symptoms that you think might be suggestive of pancreatic cancer, then on the Pancreatic Cancer Action website, there is a symptoms diary that can be downloaded and that's got information um, on it about the symptoms. You can record how frequent they are, if it's pain, how, how severe it is and all this kind of thing. You can take that into the GP and then they will say, oh, pancreatic cancer, hang on a minute. And it gives information for the GP about pancreatic cancer and symptoms and things like that. So, again, that's a tool that, that can be used. Uh, but please don't be afraid. The GPs are not going to be offended they do acknowledge this is a difficult disease to diagnose. And I think uh, any help that we can give them is, is a positive move. Tell us the website then, and we will... Uh... It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, pancreaticcanceraction.org. We have just launched our Turn It Purple for November's Awareness Month. And what we are hoping that people can do is um, actually down, either download or order a pack, which is free of charge from the pancreaticcanceraction.org website and um, take part. Wear, wear something purple, share something purple. But we also have the Purple Heart this year. And we're encouraging people to take the Purple Heart, maybe put it in their windows uh, like they did for the NHS for COVID, but just for people to think about and remember pancreatic cancer um, in, in November. So uh, please join us in that. All the details are on pancreaticcanceraction.org website. And uh, also there's Light It Purple as well. Um, so if you are able to light up your own home with some purple fairy lights, um, or you know somebody who's got access to a nice building that can be lit purple, then um, do let us know. And we're doing that in collaboration with other charities as well. Thank you to Ali for talking to me this episode. It was fascinating to hear Ali's story. It was great to hear what she does with Pancreatic Cancer Action. And it's important to know what the knock-on effect of COVID-19 has been on people with pancreatic cancer. And I think the more we shout about this and the more this is heard, the more important it is and also remember the very wise words at the end. If you have any, any inkling, any suspicion that any symptoms you have might be pancreatic cancer, then you must mention it to your GP and you must go see your GP so you can mention it. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so. You can find us purplerainbow.co.uk and we'll see you next month. <laughs>